Okay, so uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series of focusing on who Jesus is. Uh, we're specifically unpacking names given to Jesus, often by himself in the Gospel of John. In the last two weeks, we looked at titles John gave Jesus as he starts out his Gospel. Garrett talked about how Jesus is the Word, the beginning of all things. And last week, Wyatt explained how, as the Lamb of God, Jesus is the sacrifice without blemish. This week, we will shift to a series of statements unique to John where Jesus tells us about himself. And each of these names or titles begins with the phrase, I am. This morning, I want to focus on a statement found multiple times in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, bread is a universal food, one of the most, if not the most, central part of human diet throughout history. Somewhere deep in the past, humans discovered that if you crush grain into a powdery substance, add some liquid, and throw it on a hot surface, it turns into a versatile, chewy substance that is not only delicious but good for you. Almost every culture in the world has some type of bread. You have Mediterranean pita, uh, Indian naan, Mesoamerican tortilla, Wonder Bread at Kroger, uh, and hundreds if not thousands of types of bread. We have white bread, wheat bread, whole grain bread, seven grain bread, multi-grain bread, rye, pumpernickel, and the list goes on. But in recent years, bread has gotten a bad reputation. At this time of year, when everyone is trying to lose that holiday weight, which if you think about it, is kind of counterintuitive because our bodies are going to want to put on weight in the winter. So just use that as an excuse not to diet. But one of the first things we are told to cut out are carbs. Every diet out there tells us to cut out carbs. It is so prevalent that now Weight Watchers is trying to get you into their program by paying Oprah to tell everyone how much she loves bread. And on this program, you don't have to deprive yourself. Oprah has been in the news this week. I thought I had to get her in there somewhere. Uh, but outside of carbs, the other big negative about bread, maybe you've heard, is we've just found out that it's full of gluten. And gluten is a natural protein found in wheat, barley, and other grains. Uh, and gluten forms when water is added and flour is mixed. During mixing, a continuous network of proteins forms, giving the dough its strength and elasticity. By holding gas produced by fermentation, the protein network allows the bread to rise. Gluten is really important in bread. But some people seem to have an intolerance to gluten. There's a really serious condition called celiac disease, which is a serious allergic reaction to wheat. But other non-celiac individuals are finding that removing gluten from their diet has great health benefits, most of which are related to the digestive tract. The problem is gluten is in everything, not just food. According to glutenfreesociety.org, to go truly gluten-free, I have to stop licking stamps, use toothpaste, shampoo, or eat Play-Doh, which I can live with because I really don't use that much shampoo anyway. Uh, my point, not trying to dismiss anyone's opinions about carbs, gluten, or bread in general, uh, but my point is that it seems that today, for multiple reasons, more and more people have a hard time digesting bread. And I want to suggest that Jesus, although possibly low-carb, might not be gluten-free. And I don't know if it's because the Jesus we buy at the store is full of additives and stripped of his nutritional value, or it might be because over time I have developed a spiritually hardened digestive tract. Either way, sometimes 
Jesus can give me gas. But he tells us, I am the bread of life. And no matter how I make you feel, you need me in your diet. Now, to unpack the statement, I am the bread of life, we need to examine John chapter 6 as a whole, where bread has a central focus uh, nearly some 20 times in there. In John 6, we find the story of the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, if you grew up in the church, you know uh, that this is the story of the boy with five loaves and two fish, which Jesus multiplies into food for thousands and has, you know, 12 baskets left over. Interestingly, this is the only one of Jesus' miracles recorded in all four Gospels. So there must be something significant about the event. Now, John, in his Gospel, places the story of the feeding of 5,000 on the heels of significant signs. And this is an important term here. In Jesus' early ministry, uh, we see these signs. Uh, First, Jesus turns water into wine, and then there are a couple of healings in chapters 4 and 5, which sets the stage for the opening of chapter 6. In John 6, 2, it says, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, I want to highlight here how the narrative progresses, namely discussions between Jesus and the people about bread. I think as the text progresses, there is a growing exasperation in Jesus' comments as the people don't seem to get his point. The chronology of John is not always easy to decipher. See, chapter 6 starts out on a mountain and then ends in a synagogue without any real narrative shift. In verse 4 of chapter 6, John tells us that this happens at the Passover, which is odd because there was already a feast mentioned in chapter 5. But the importance here of Passover is probably thematic. You see, Passover has a strong association with bread, unleavened bread in particular but also with two key points that John is drawing attention to. The giving of bread in the wilderness and its association with Moses and Jesus' teaching on the significance of his flesh and blood. And we'll come back to that later. Now, moving into the text, we see in verse 5, it says that Jesus, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Now, I think this is one time in the Gospels that Jesus is really being a jerk because he knows what's going on. The next verse tells us that he's just trying to test Philip. Jesus knows what's going to happen and that he is really the bread that he's talking about. So in the story, you know, the people come and Jesus takes the small boy's food and uh, feeds, the, feeds the group and they have all these leftovers. Then in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. You see, the people were looking for a sign that would fulfill Deuteronomy 18, that someone like Moses would come. They are looking for someone who will mediate between them and God, who speaks for God like Moses did. Maybe someone who wages war for God like Moses did, who will with outstretched arms and mighty power once again free them from their oppressors. But you see, even though they say they are looking for a sign, on the next day, after Jesus hides in the hills and then walks on water, when they find Jesus, he reveals their true desires, the desires of their heart. In verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knew that the people didn't want to believe as much as they wanted to be satisfied in some physical sense. 
They wanted their bellies full, their bodies healed, their power restored. But Jesus, although he offers most of these things, says, if this is all you want, you will never be satisfied. If this is all you expect of me, then you may never really believe who I say I am. I think a key point here is that it is easy to approach Jesus in this way. We often approach him in a contractual relationship. If you do this, I will do this. If, you, if I see you working, I will believe. Well, sort of. And Jesus calls out this contractual mindset. In verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, tell me what I need to do to get my belly full, and I will gladly comply. Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, it's not about doing, it's about belief. You know, we are saved not by works, but by faith, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. However, I think it is interesting here that in some way, Jesus equates belief, belief with work. Now, again, I'm not saying salvation is dependent on various levels of belief, but at least in my life, belief has not always been easy. It is something that I have had to work on. When things don't go my way, when my belly isn't full, when the pain of this flesh overwhelms me, when I don't feel Jesus like I used to, I struggle to believe. Like the exasperated father we see in Mark chapter 9 with a son who since childhood experienced some form of spiritual oppression, causing the boy to engage in self-injurious behavior, I often cry for Jesus' healing touch by saying, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And the world makes belief so much harder because they ridicule and mock those of us who believe. Even though each scientific discovery of the nature of the universe only unlocks greater mystery of its design, belief is for the uneducated and sheltered. Even though our culture is so self-absorbed and devoid of any moral compass and the world is going to hell in a handbasket, belief is culturally irrelevant, irrelevant and sexually rep repressive. Sometimes belief is not easy to swallow. You see, belief is not just getting our bellies full. It is about feasting on Jesus, flesh, blood, and all. And Jesus is not easy to digest. Jesus is not gluten-free. So how do the people respond? You see, they still don't seem to get it even after this. In verse 30, they say to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? I, can't just, I can just imagine Jesus at this point. He says, well, I changed the molecular structure of water. I brought a kid back from the dead. I healed a guy who hadn't walked in 40 years. And I fed an entire stadium of people on a kid's Lunchable. And you ask me for a sign. Next, the people had to prove, I think, their belief based on Bible knowledge. And they bring up the story of Moses and the manna. Now remember, they're looking for a sign. They're looking for a new Moses. They're not really looking for Jesus. They say in verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now see, after the miraculous freedom from oppression in Egypt, 
Israel spent an entire generation wandering in the desert because they were not 100% grateful what God had just done. But God continues to extend grace and feed them while they walk around in the wilderness without little vegetation. And they would wake up each morning and find an edible bread-like substance on the ground, which they called manna, which in Hebrew literally means, what is that? The following dialogue between Jesus and the crowd compares Jesus, the bread of life, to Moses and manna. And there's a few points I want to draw out here in this. Number one, our interpretation of the past does not define Jesus in the present. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. There appears to be some confusion over who provided the manna. Who is the he in their comment? They're likely quoting a scripture, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus points out that the Father provided the bread. It was not Moses. You see, even though they were watching for signs, they were looking for God to recreate the past, what they knew, or at least what they had been told. Jesus never fulfills our expectations of him. He will always challenge our preconceived notions of how the Father reveals himself. We cannot rely on the faith of our ancestors to carry us to Jesus. We must make that journey ourselves. We can also not expect God to reveal himself the same way he does to the person sitting next to us. Yes, God is never changing, but we cannot covet the experience of another. Are we looking to get our bellies full like our ancestors did? Or it seems like our neighbors do? Or are we looking for Jesus? A second thing we see here is that in many ways, Jesus is like the manna. Because he too was sent by the Father to, uh, sent by the Father to feed his people. In verse, starting in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In many ways, the experience of the manna was symbolic of Christ's coming. As an act of divine love and grace, the Father gave Israel, a rebellious and ungrateful people, sustenance. He sent them a Savior. He released them from oppression. Now, once again, the Father, in an act of divine love and grace, has sent his children, a rebellious and ungrateful that we are, something to eat. But the bread does not merely fill our bellies. Which leads me to a next point, is that unlike the manna that was temporary, Jesus is eternal. Jesus feeds us beyond our earthly existence. Starting in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it. Who eats of it will not die. I am the living bread that came down from Hannah, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will that, and the bread that I will give from the life of the world is my flesh. The manna was not temporary. It only lasted for the day. Any longer it would rot. The event was not temporary. On the, only the generation in the wilderness experienced it. And the people themselves were temporary. Has anyone here seen or tasted manna? 
Not be, no, because everyone who did died. See, Jesus says, I am not temporary. I am eternal. I will not rot. I will not cease to be. Are you hungry, looking for something to get you beyond the moment, make life worth living? Here I am. The best part is if you eat, consume me, feast on me, you will experience a life far better than what your frail bodies could ever offer. You see, Jesus is our nourishment. And this is the only thing I want you to hear this morning, is that Jesus is what sustains us. Not just physically, but what nourishes that deep inner part that is hard to qualify that we can only call our soul, our person that longs to be more than bones and flesh, longs to be more than our jobs, our communities, our families, that part of us that hungers, thirsts, longs for something Something that actually tastes good. And there are a couple ways that Jesus satisfies this craving. You see, the bread of life is the source of divine revelation. The people were looking for a signs of a new Moses, a new mediator, someone who relayed the words of God. And Jesus is far superior than Moses. He not only speaks for the Father, he is the Word, the embodiment of divine revelation that is beyond human speech. As the writer to the Hebrews starts out his epistle, he says, long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all also was created the world. You see, if we want to be fed, we need to feast on the Word of God. And Jesus knew this. Before he began his public ministry, he went into the desert to withdraw from the world so that the world would not be a snare to him. In Matthew chapter 4, it said, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, if you only want to fill your belly, go eat some rocks. If you want to feed your soul, go and consume God's word. The other way that Jesus nourishes us is that the bread of life is the sustenance of the church. In verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me and who he also will live because of me. Now at the beginning, I noted how John places chapter 6 within the context of the Passover feast. And the early church uh, Passover, this Jewish celebration of what God did for Israel and Egypt, took on new meaning. Because you see, before God sent the manna, he sent the lamb. Before the people were fed in the wilderness, they were saved by blood. Jesus forever changed the perspective of Passover when during a celebration he stood up, looked around the table, and said, let me tell you something about the blood of salvation. 
ever since the church has celebrated around the table, not as individuals, but as a living body, feasting in communion on the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. This is the sustenance of the church. And I want to bring this home by once again suggesting that Jesus is not gluten-free. He is hard to digest. We even see this in the text. In verse 60, it says, When many of the disciples heard this teaching, they said, Oh, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus said to them, Do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at me? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see, to eat and drink Jesus is not about physical things. It's not about cannibalism. It's not about a tiny cup and a little cracker. It is about sharing in his suffering, dying to self as he did, submitting to the will of the Father as he did, embracing the power of the Holy Spirit. Coming to the table is an act of taking up the cross of Christ. And that's why Jesus is so hard to digest. Because living for something other than self-gratification gives a person real indigestion. Now see, even after this teaching, many of his disciples even turned from him and walked away. We see that Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Peter's answer in verse 68 is one of my life verses. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You and you alone have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Other than Jesus, there is no answer. Nothing will satisfy. There is nowhere else to go. Now, I've come to a place in my life that I recognize that if I didn't have Jesus as a central focus, if I don't do the hard work of sorting out belief with fear and trembling, I'm not sure life is worth living. You see, without Jesus, the world is really nothing but Facebook posts and reality TV. Vanity of vanities chasing after the wind. I wager there's at least one person out here this morning who is at the end of the rope. So you have tasted everything the world has to offer and you are not satisfied. You spend your days hungry and thirsty, rummaging through the garbage of this world looking for scraps. If none of this makes sense to you, ask somebody about this bread we speak about. After the service, find Casey, find Garrett, find another a member of the ministry staff. Uh, there will be prayer counselors up front. Or take a look at the person next to you. I hope some of us look healthy and well-fed this morning. See, here in a minute, uh, MJ and the band are going to lead us uh, in a time of worship. And then we will partake of the emblems. You know, these are symbols of what Christ has to offer. And as the plates are passed, eat up. Feast on Jesus. And I guarantee this will be the best meal you will have this week. And I want to close this morning with a call to worship from the prophet Isaiah. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for bread 
uh, that uh, spend money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. 